Well, good morning. So I, I noticed we have some visitors, so I, uh, I teach New Testament at Ambrose University, and my wife is the children's pastor here, Jen Snow, one of the children's pastors at uh, First Nazarene, and Brian had mentioned to me, Pastor Brian, don't worry about the time, you got lots of time. I said, well, you're not the one that has to drive home with the children's pastor, so... <laughs> Don't tell her I said that, okay? We'll just keep this in this room, and we'll be okay. Well, today I want to talk about uh, holiness, carrying on with uh, what Pastor Brian was talking about last week. It was under the title, Transformed, but holiness was the, the focus. And uh, Pastor Brian had talked about holiness as being set apart, which it is keeping things separate, which pertains to God in kind of distinction with things that are unclean and, and unholy. But today I want to look at holiness um, specifically in a different format, and I've titled the sermon Upside Down Holiness, moving from exclusion to inclusion. So upside down holiness, moving from exclusion to inclusion. Now, holiness right side up, that is as separation, holiness as it's kind of conceived, if you read the book of Leviticus, maybe you'll do that this afternoon, it's a rainy day, but that's where you find out a lot about holiness as separation. And um, the idea of separating things actually transcends cultures. Typically, we don't eat food with dirty hands because we'll get sick, so there's just inherently as part of being human, the way God structured the world is we just keep certain things separate. So I remember coming home and seeing a pair of running shoes on the kitchen counter where we chop vegetables and things like that. And I'm like, whoa, who put those there? They don't fit. Take them away. There was a year that we, uh, and it was for exactly one, <laughs> the kids aren't here, one calendar year where we decided to get a dog. It turned out to be for one calendar year, and uh, the problem that I had with it is that the dog hair did not stay on the dog where it belonged, and it kept collecting along all the baseboards in the house as people walk, and it gets brushed to the side, and I was sweeping and mopping and dusting every morning before work, and I couldn't take it anymore. I can tell you the rest of the story later, but anyway, um, that dog hair needs to stay on the dog, or sitting in a white, off-white chair with greasy pants that I've been working. I like to do my own mechanical work on the car. Jen quickly pointed out that those two fabrics don't mix, denim with grease and, well, whatever the fabric of the coach is, that those blended. So we keep things separate. But sometimes separation is a good thing, too. Uh, finding yourself in an awkward situation where you just don't belong. Um, I remember inviting a friend of mine to a prestigious lecture at Trinity Western University, the, uh, Dr. Peter Flint, he's now deceased, but was awarded a, a $1 million Canada Research Chair for the study of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And I invited a friend of mine who, I don't even think he had high school education, but he's really interested in the Dead Sea Scrolls. I said, why don't you come with me? So they had a reception, I was teaching at just part-time at Trinity Western at the time, so they had a, re a reception where we could go and, and uh, kind of schmooze with some of the academics from the lower mainland, and, and so that was great, and I love chatting it up with 
with uh, those types of people, and um, all of a sudden I noticed the room as it got closer to the start of this lecture, the, the, the people in the room was decreasing, and uh, it kind of struck me, and then I noticed there was a lady going around with a checklist, and she was uh, looking at the names, and, or asking what's your name, and checking people off, and she came to me, I knew I wasn't going to be on that list, and I had a feeling this was going somewhere badly, but anyway, she just came up to me, I didn't leave, I don't know, anyway, I just stayed there, and she came up to me, and she said, what's your name, and I said, oh, Rob Snow, and she looked down, and looked at me, looked down, and then just kind of walked away, and um, long story short, it was time to go into this lecture, and I realized that I'm parading in now with these hoity-toity academics and, and they're going to the front of this lecture hall, which now is standing room only because it's at the start of it, and I'm right up in the front row. The colleagues of mine that were full-time at Trinity Western were not even a part of this group. They were sitting further back, and I was, I don't feel embarrassment very often, but I felt a lot of embarrassment. That lady should have told me, you don't belong here. You need to leave. So that was supposed to be funny, but anyway, um, it's... Sometimes separation is, is actually a very good thing. And so when we, we look at the, the Pharisees in the New Testament, we see that they are very good at separating things. So they come up to the disciples um, after they have been in the marketplace in, in Mark 7, and, and they ask Jesus, why do your disciples eat with unwashed hands? And just for us Gentiles, not knowing the story, Mark throws in, uh, this parenthetical comment that the Pharisees wash everything. They're washing their cups, their kettles, their pitchers, their lounging coaches. It's like you got a picture of it. I was on a flight recently where I saw an individual pull out these wipes, and he's like scrubbing down the seat in front of him. He's wiping uh, the arms of his seat and, and where he's going to sit, and he like sanitized his whole personal space on that airplane. And that's exactly what the Pharisees do. They, they sanitize all of their personal spaces, things that they're going to touch, lest anything unclean make them ritually defiled and impure. Why would they do that? Because the Pharisees felt so much of Judaism in their time was impure, including the priests in the temple, uh, including the parts of the temple itself. And they thought if the temple isn't going to be a holy place, we can be a holy people of God ourselves. So we're just going to take all the rules from the book of Leviticus, which are applied to priests in the temple, and we're going to make our own personal holiness wherever we go. And it's like this stuff all the time, keeping themselves very clean and pure and set apart. And, and so these individuals knew, they knew boundaries, and they knew what the boundaries were for keeping that which is defiled, separate from which is pure and holy, which was them. There's one uh, Roman historian, Josephus, tells us that there was only about 6,000 Pharisees during the time of Jesus, out of hundreds of thousands living in Palestine, and, and these people were well known because it took so much work to maintain that ritual purity, when so many people didn't care about being pure and holy uh, before God. So they were a very well-known group of people. But there's a story one day where Jesus, in the book of Luke, we're, gonna, we're not actually going to look at these stories, I'll just tell you them, but you can look them up in Luke chapter uh, 7, verse 36 to 50. There's uh, a story of Jesus who's invited to Simon the Pharisee. 
to his house. Now, if you know the Gospel of Luke and into the book of Acts, these people are always eating. I mean, every time you turn around, Jesus is having a meal. Uh, I'm sure if Luke had the space, he would put in kind of what Jesus had to do to, to burn off some of the calories at the end of that. That was a joke. But anyway, so <laughs> I've been going to this church for, for 13 years now, and some of you don't know me very well. But anyway, so, so in the Greco-Roman world, when you have a meal at someone's house, you recline. As you can see, I'm reclining. I don't know that this is very comfortable if I had to use a, a fork and a knife and a spoon and to cut my steak, but... But it makes sense of the story because Jesus, as he's reclining at Simon the Pharisee's house, it says that a woman of the city came up behind him and began to anoint his feet and began to wash his feet with her tears and began to dry them with her hair. And Simon the Pharisee, reclining on the other side of the table, says... If this man were a prophet, he would know who and what kind of woman is touching him, that she's a sinner. So the Pharisees have a very good understanding of boundaries and of separation. And the problem was that their heart's desire to be separate and to be holy and to be dedicated to God started to come at the expense of the well-being of those who are not holy and who are not like them, who are separate. See, for them, the holy can't mix with that which is unholy. But there has been a misalignment somewhere in the, in the thinking of the Pharisees because their desire to maintain separation became boundary markers, became their own identity. Their identity was to be exclusive, was to separate themselves from anything that wasn't like them. And this was a problem for Jesus because he came as God's anointed son to manifest God's love and inclusion wherever he went. But something went wrong. This is actually quite comfortable. Something went wrong for the Pharisees. And that is... When you look at Genesis chapter 12, when Abraham is called, he says, I want you to, you will become rather a great nation, and I will bless you. And why will I bless you? So that you can be a blessing to others. The whole nation of Israel was formed and called and, and grown by God so that they could reflect God's light, God's love and saving presence wherever they went. But the time, by the time we get to Jesus in the Gospels and the Pharisees, the Pharisees had made an idol of their desire to be separate. That became more important than even worshiping God himself and obeying his commands. Jesus even says, you, you honor the commandments of men more than the commands of God. That's idolatry. And so they set this thing apart for themselves, shut themselves off, and it was completely at odds with what God desired the nation to be. In the Church of the Nazarene and other holiness movements as, I'm not going to move that back because we're going to have another meal in a minute, but you look at other holiness movements, so in the, in the 
middle of the 19th century into the early 20th century. There's a lot of revivals happening, around, happening throughout the United States, and, and it was quite a, quite a time to be alive as the West is being settled and frontiers being developed and so forth. Of course, you throw in the American Civil War. Lots happening in the United States at this time. And there was a lot of poverty, there was a lot of alcohol abuse, gambling, and these sorts of things. And the church's response to was to contextualize the gospel to that period. That those destructive habits and lifestyles are, are not what God desires for you. So we, we had guidelines, various denominations, holiness denominations, had guidelines that encouraged people to leave that lifestyle and come and experience the lifestyle that God has for you, which is not destructive, but in fact is life-giving. But if I think if I've asked any general superintendent, those are the people that look after the Church of the Nazarene, ask them, do you think sometimes maybe our desire to be separate and to, to show the way for holiness and the ways in which we're not going to be like the world might have become a form of idolatry and boundary markers just as it has been for the Pharisees? I think everyone would agree with them. In fact, there's a, a sanctioned book entitled Here We Stand written by two scholars in the Church of the Nazarene that's signed off by a general superintendent and in that chapter they acknowledge that fact. It's very important. Okay, so just hold that. Let's have another meal. So Jesus, Luke goes out of his way. I'm not, just not, I'm not much of an actor, so um, this is very uncomfortable for me, just as a side note. But there's no other way to kind of articulate this other than show you. So this is in Luke chapter 5, and for those of you who are interested, it's, um, I can't find it, it's Luke 5.17, I think. It's the story of Jesus coming to uh, Levi's house. And Levi is a tax collector. And the thing with the tax collectors is that they are almost worse than sinners, if that's possible, in the eyes of uh, Jews. And so Jesus is at the house of a sinner and a tax collector. Now, in light of what I've just said, that's, that's problematic, right? Where, where you have a holy prophet of God, a rabbi, hanging around with those who are unclean. So, Jesus is reclining at table with these, uh, with these sinners, with these tax collectors, and the disciples are on the other side. And the disciples, it's like the Pharisees, I don't know if you read it, the Pharisees show up and they're not invited at this dining table because they wouldn't, they wouldn't be there. They're too... They're, they're, they're about separation and exclusion. So the disciples are at the other side of the table, and it's like the Pharisees stick their heads in the window. And they're like, why are you guys eating with sinners and tax collectors? And Jesus, sitting across the other side of the table, says in response, I've not come to call the righteous to repentance, but rather sinners. I've not... the that those who are well, those who are healthy, have no need of a doctor, but those who are sick. So, so something has happened here. Jesus, as the fullest revelation of God, now 
as the Holy One of God, even the, the, um, the demons acknowledge this, the Holy One of God is now smack dab in the middle of all of this impurity. And, and how could that be, right? What has happened? How, how can this work? Because even in the book of Leviticus, God says, be holy for I am holy, to be set apart, to be, to be not like the world. And here's the kicker with the whole thing. See, when you, if I invite Pastor Blaine, it's just, you're right there, <laughs> smiling. Um, if I invite Pastor Blaine out to lunch, which I have before, we've had lunch, it's been a long time, and I, and I sit across from him at table, <laughs> this is a bad example, but um, no one's like, wow. <laughs> no, this was a bad example. It's backfiring. Um, <laughs> and I don't know if I can recover. Let's say, let's say it's just would be Pastor Blaine is just really out to lunch on his views, and we're out to lunch. That's a figure of, you know, figure of speech, but we're out to lunch. It's just you wouldn't expect me to be hanging out with Pastor Blaine. He's just so different from me. Maybe I find him annoying. There you go. I find him annoying. Okay, so that's a good one because we can relate to that. We have annoying people in our lives. I've recovered this. I'm recovering this. And so, so we're out to lunch, and, and, uh, and people see this, and, and they're like, wow, why, why is Rob out with Pastor Blaine? I thought, I thought he found Pastor Blaine so annoying. Why are they sitting together? I can't believe this. Well, in the Greco-Roman world, when you had, like, people that don't fit with one, one another, and namely people from different socioeconomic classes... So Jesus having lunch with sinners and tax collectors, like sinners and tax collectors are on the bottom of the heap, especially tax collectors, lower than prostitutes, like in, in Jewish thinking. And for, for Jesus, the most holy one to be out there, having a meal with them, is kind of the same response that people see me and Blaine having lunch together. It just doesn't fit. Why? Because in the Greco-Roman world, to sit at table with somebody says that you matter, says that we are equals. And in fact, in the eyes of the Pharisees, what's really behind that question, why do your disciples eat with sinners and tax collectors, the real question that those Pharisees want to know, why is Jesus condoning their behavior? Because it communicates that Jesus supports that lifestyle. And how many times have I heard it said in holiness circles growing up, don't be with them because it looks like you're supporting them. And I would say, yeah, good point if it wasn't for Jesus Christ. So what changed? Why is it that the holy can mix with the unholy and the holy isn't under threat or defiled? It's the gospel. It's, it's Jesus Christ going and dying on the cross, so that which defiles, that which contaminates, that which is a threat to the holiness of God is completely covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. That, plus the presence of the Holy Spirit living in Jesus, 
enables him to communicate the presence of God, the holiness of God, by even touching that which is unclean. See, in the book of Leviticus, unholiness is like a virus you can catch. It contaminates you. But because of the cross of Christ, because of the presence of the Holy Spirit, God's people have the contagion of holiness to spread around and infect people with. And what does that look like? It means sitting at table, getting to know people, building relationship with people that you wouldn't otherwise build relationship with. And, and the fear is not, are they going to influence me? The promise of God is, is that we will influence them. And that, that's what it means to be the church. And it's like, just even writing this sermon, I was like, wow, when I think about my own up, and I, I love the Church of the Nazarene, I've been raised in the Nazarene, you couldn't be any more Nazarene than me. I, I won't list off like Paul, you know, born on the eighth day or anything like that, because <laughs> Paul gets kind of personal in there. Anyway, um, <laughs> somebody got it, good. So, but I grew up, here's my catalog of of Nazarene faithfulness. I never went to a movie uh, until I left home. I never went to dances. I never played with cards or any other thing, but those movies and sports on Sunday, none of that. So the thing that I want to, to there's a couple things I want us to, to think about in this, is that the gospel always needs to be contextualized for the day and age in which we live. And I'm not saying there's no more boundaries, there's no more moral guidelines. Of course there is. The Holy Spirit naturally means purity and holiness and ethics and behavior. But what does it mean to be the holy people of God at this point in our history and not the holy people of God at the end of the 19th century, right? And so, so what is it? And the way in which I think we as the church need to think about this, and Pastor Brian has... has um, emphasize this and over and over again, what does it mean to hear the voice of God for us in our present circumstances so that then we bring the holy presence of God to those who need it most? And for each of us, it's going to be different. Maybe, maybe it is that kind of annoying person in your life that you don't want to spend time with but you know needs companionship, maybe needs a, a coffee or someone to reach out to them. Maybe it's that neighbor down the road that no one seems to bother with. So, I think I can say this, but we'll see how it goes. Um, <laughs> there was an incident in the southwest of Calgary where four pit bulls escaped from someone's backyard and bit one lady and, and uh, the dogs had their way with her dog. And, uh, and so, it was bad. And so... This, this house now is known, and it's on our street. And I was thinking, after writing this sermon, what could I do now that everyone in the city of Calgary, if they watch global news, knows about this person? See, my first response is, if I see those dogs out again, I'm going to call animal control, and, and we're, we're going we're to stay on this guy until those dogs are taken care of. Or I could be, yes, got to keep the dogs under control. Like you can't just 
half-build a fence and lean some boards up, and hopefully that's going to keep four pit bulls out. No, they, they escaped. So we got to keep the dogs under control. But what if I went down to him and said, hey, let me help you build that fence? And, and see, the world in which we live, because of its fallenness, we don't naturally think what the thoughts of God would be in a given situation. And I think it's incumbent upon us as the people of God to be like, hey God, what, what do you have for me to do in this situation in light of how Jesus Christ ministered on earth, which was all about doing stuff that just doesn't make any sense. So this week, I want you to be in prayer about what does this look like for me? Maybe it's simple as a phone call. Maybe it's going to visit somebody. But just something that you know is kind of there, you know needs to be addressed. I believe the Holy Spirit will give you wisdom for what that looks like for you. And, and this, this is how the kingdom of God is advanced going out into the world. And I love the, the saying, as we leave the, the, our church, go and be the church, right? Being the presence of God wherever we are. Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you for your love and goodness to us. I thank you for your faithfulness to us. And Lord, if there's any here today that may feel, well, I'm not even holy myself. The Lord has laid this verse on my heart for you. The Corinthian church, I'm just going to stop praying for a second, but you can keep your eyes closed. The Corinthian church, if you read that letter, boy, these are one messed up bunch of people. I mean, you know. Uh, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that does not even occur among the pagans. Well, holiness unto the Lord. I mean, you know, it, it's, just, it's just page after page of, of eating food sacrificed to idols in the context of a, of a pagan temple, to the misuse of the spiritual gifts, to arrogance in the community, to divisiveness. If you feel the feelings of inadequacy or I am not holy in my own life to go and just express the holiness and the love of God, you need to hear how Paul addresses this church. He says in verse 2 of 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, verse 2, to the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy. Your identity is not built on your behaviors. If it was, we would all be in trouble and the cross of Christ would be null and void. Your identity is built on the cross of Christ in the, in the sacrifice of his son and his shed blood. You are holy because of what Christ has done. And, and, and now it's like, hey, let's go and do this. But the enemy will want to convince you that, no, you've done this. You've said that. There's no way God, you, who, are, who are you 
think that you can go and reflect the holiness of God to someone else. But that is a lie. And it's actually a lie from the depths of hell. Because of what Christ has done, you are the holy people of God. That is our identity. And it's then just a case of growing into what is available for us because of what Christ has done and because of the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so, God, would you minister that truth into our hearts and our minds this day? I pray that your Holy Spirit would just speak a word of encouragement to those who feel, hey, I, I can't do that. And that by your Holy Spirit's presence, by your consolation, that you would encourage the heart of everyone in this room to be like, no, I, I can do this because of what Jesus has done, not because of what I have done. And Lord, as best as I can, I, I receive what you have done on the cross for me. And I just want to go out and tell the rest of the world about it. And we will give you all the praise and the glory for it. In Jesus' name, amen.